Hello, welcome to Moms Changing the World. This is your host, Akua Walker, Child Development Nurse Practitioner and CEO, Chief Encouragement Officer, introducing the new podcast, which is the place for moms to find encouragement, hope, and inspiration, where we're supporting moms in the trenches of motherhood. You will receive practical tips and strategies to address the developmental needs of your children with a positive parenting perspective in mind. Here at Moms Changing the World, we are moms on the journey of changing the world, one child at a time, one day at a time. another episode of Moms Changing the World. This is your host, Akua Walker, pediatric nurse practitioner and CEO, chief encouragement officer of moms who are out there in the trenches raising the next generation of world changers, one child at a time, one day at a time. Today's episode is a special one uh, because we get to connect with a, a dear friend of mine who also shares in the nursing and advanced practice nursing fields that we have both chosen. And it's really cool to kind of think back to when we were in college together at Stanford, just trying to figure out who we were and what we wanted to do with our lives. And over the decades, we have come to kind of hear the call that God has placed on our lives and follow it. And it has just blossomed beautifully, you know, in her life and in in ours as we get to connect and reconnect to share her story today. So I am so excited to welcome Lukithia Bastardi to our show today. She is a doctorate in and nurse and anesthesiology. And I will apologize in advance because that word always trips me up. <laughs> but she's a nurse anesthetist and a faculty member who is doing amazing work to really open doors for those who would like you know, to join in, in our amazing profession, helping people in just so many incredible ways. So welcome, Lakeithia. So glad to have you. Thank you so much for having me. It's just a joy to get to be with the chief encouragement. <laughs> And I love to encourage people too, so. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. And so, yeah, as we're getting started, why don't you just tell us a little bit about yourself and your life now, and then we'll we'll jump in. Yes, so my name is Lukethia Alice Bastardi. So super long name, and I often have to spell it for people, (laughs) Um, but I'm actually named for my grandmother. Everyone called her Miss Alice, so that's where I get my name. Let's see, I've been married for nearly 20 years. I can hardly believe that to the man I fell in love with as a college student. We met in the gospel choir. That's right. Yeah. I remember watching you guys. I know you were there for it. You saw it all happen. (laughs) Yes. Yes. From the beginning. Yes. So we have three wonderful kids. We have a daughter who is 15 and she's going to be a 10th grader. And we have two sons. One son is 13 and he's going to be an eighth grader. And then we have a six-year-old who just finished kindergarten today. So he'll (laughs) be in first grade in the fall. Oh, that's Um, amazing. Yeah. And I feel like something that's important and good to know about me is that I'm really involved in community. And so I'm not doing life by myself. I'm doing it in community with other people. We're very involved in our church. In our churches, in our neighborhood, 
and a lot of people in the neighborhood attend church. So we run into each other in other places around town. Kids go to school together, that sort of thing. So I'm not doing it by myself. I've got Mm -hmm. people near me that are as dear as family and we're doing it together. Yeah. Yeah. That's such an important point. I'm glad you started off that way because we talk about, you know, joining arms as moms together, doing this incredible job. You're right that we really can't do alone. And I think part of the struggle in it is when we try to do it alone. Yeah. And so it's beautiful when I hear examples and stories of how it sounds like you've really built your life within your community side by side with neighbors who also share your faith and go to church with you so that your kids can grow up with that sense of belonging, you know, and connectedness. Absolutely. And yeah. the, in my free time, <laughs> <laughs> right, all the loads of it that you have, <laughs> but in my free time, I really enjoy reading and I read a wide variety of things. Right now I'm actually reading a young adult book with my daughter. So yeah. I read children's books, young adult books, grown-up books, all kinds of books. I also love listening to music. I'm constantly listening to music in my car when I'm running. And sometimes I'm not playing it aloud. I just kind of have a soundtrack running in my head. So, <laughs> <laughs> I have a song for every every occasion, every event. Oh, um, awesome. Something that has been more recent is just going for walks. I have found, I walk, go for a walk at least once a day, sometimes more. Mm-hmm. And I found it does so much more than give me some exercise and to get me mm-hmm. out of the chair. But it's a nice time to connect with my husband or one of my kids just to see people and be seen by people. That's important, especially in a pandemic where we aren't quite seeing each other as intimately as we used to. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, and, and it sounds funny, but I really like making lists. I like <laughs> checking things off a list. So I can be found sometimes <laughs> like having the goal and making the list of everything that I have to do to get to that. And it can be, mm-hmm. what do I need to do to get through today? And mm-hmm. I write all that down or it could be, what, how am I going to get to that point five years from now that I want to be at? Yeah. So I really yeah. love that. That's great. I love that we're, you know, jumping right in with the practicals of, you know, how you juggle and, you know, get all, you know, all the things that I'm sure are on your full plate, you know, done and lists and writing things down is huge. I know, you know, for myself, it, it does help me keep track of what I need to to do. And I've been like more into lists and less into lists over the, you know, the course of my journey. But yeah, it's really, it's really important to see sometimes in black and white or, you know, in our you know, phone or on our computer, what we need and want to get accomplished and how we're doing it. And then it's something satisfying about checking it off, right? Like <laughs> crossing it out and like dunning it, right? And having that, you know, re- really taking the moment to have that internal celebration or, you know, external like, yeah, I did it. And then it, it boosts you to the next thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thanks for yeah. that. That's mostly me. And then professionally, you mentioned that I am also a nurse. Um, yeah. so I just think it's a sweet gift that from where we started mm-hmm. is undergrads together that we ended up in such close proximity professionally. Mm-hmm. But I am a certified registered nurse anesthetist. Mm-hmm. So I know anesthetist is hard to say for sure. <laughs> just say the RNA. Um, and there's also been some change in our profession. So I can also be called a nurse anesthesiologist. So mm-hmm. 
same initial CRNA. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I have started doing that part-time instead of full-time because now I work as a faculty member full-time teaching what I do in practice. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So career change, I'm still getting my feet wet with it. I'm still, <laughs> yeah. I'm still far from where I want to be, but it has been a great joy to get to more intimately affect students. And right. I just love nurses. So I like, mm-hmm. um, I just like lifting up my nursing colleagues and I get to do that for a living. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's really great. And I thought, yeah, this would be a good time to talk just a little bit about advanced practice nursing and, you know, and what it is, you know, in case there happens to be a listener who's like, well, what is this that you're talking about? Or what does that mean? Or maybe you're in a country where a nurse practitioner role or nurse advanced practice nurse doesn't exist or is new or looks completely different. But from, you know, kind of a, an American standpoint, the advanced practice, you know, nursing level is, is kind of that, you know, what can be considered a mid-level between your bachelor's nursing degrees or as a bachelor's trained nurse, and then your, your either doctorate or doctor level kinds of healthcare careers. And I know for myself, I, you know, didn't, growing up, I didn't really know about nurse practitioners until really it was probably college that I, I first encountered it as a as an option for my own care. And that got me asking, you know, some of the questions that have led to, you know, to where I am. But what's nice about it is that there are so many different ways to be an advanced practice nurse. And at UCSF, where I was trained, the they had a few different tracks that you could do. And I did the master's entry track because I didn't have my bachelor's in nursing, but we did an accelerated you know, nursing program so that we could then do the master's level and choose your specialty. So as an advanced practice nurse there, you could choose uh, primary care or acute care nurse practitioners where you get the assessment diagnosis and medication management for the, the population you choose, the pediatrics or family. There was nurse midwifery. You could do the pregnancy delivery, you know, labor side as a nurse midwife was one of the options there. And then they also had the clinical nurse specialist level, the CNS, where you can be combining the nursing practice with clinical leadership, management, research, and education. And so that was another unique way that you could, you know, specialize in in nursing at that level. And then there have been the additions of the doctorate level, you know, for nurse practitioners and anesthesiologists as yourself. So, and there's always been a doctor's level general nursing as well, you know, to be a professor or a faculty level or research level nurse. So there are so many incredible ways that a person could dive deeper and delve more into the the profession of an advanced practice nurse. And I chose the the pediatric nurse practitioner path because I had thought about, you know, pediatrics, you know, growing up and working with children in that, that, that diagnosing, medicating, you know, treatment kind of model. And then when I was in college and I was taking psychology and, you know, sociology classes as part of my major, I was like, well, maybe I could be a psychologist or a counselor. And then when I started working as a health educator, you know, I loved, you know, educating and coaching. And so I'm like, oh, I love this education and coaching piece. But then I also worked with the dietitians and case managers. And I said, oh, gosh, that's exciting, too. And so what's really unique about the nurse practitioner path that I chose is that it kind of marries all of those different elements together. And I really wanted and loved the diversity of now being able to diagnose, medicate, treat a child in their developmental journey, because it's a mental health specialty. I do coaching and counseling, you know, to some degree in my work as well. And then 
you know, as a as a person who thinks holistically about health, I talk to families about the diet, exercise, mindfulness, you know, aspects, you know, every day because I see it all as as brought under the roof. And over time, working with families, I I case manage, right? Or I I support in that ongoing development, coordinating and, and recommending how they connect with other services and other needs. So for me, the, the nurse practitioner path was the way to bring together, you know, everything that I wanted to do on a day-to-day basis in a really unique and specialized way for myself. So that's the long story <laughs> to how I chose my specialty, but I'm, I'm excited to hear too about how you chose your specialty as well. Yeah. So it's good to hear you speak because you actually educated me about the role of uh, CNSs. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know many, so thank you for sharing that. But similar to you, we went to an undergraduate school that did not have nursing as a possible major. And so when I became interested in it, similar to you, I had to go to another school and I actually got a second bachelor's. I did not do a master's entry program. And I just did the second bachelor's because it would take the same amount of time. And it was way cheaper for me to do that Mm -hmm. at my local state college. So that's what I did. Graduating there, I became a registered nurse. And initially, when I went into into nursing school, I was thinking to become a nurse practitioner. Mm-hmm. I thought that I would like to be either a psychiatric mental health nurse practitioner, mm-hmm. where I could um, do some of what you do, offer counsel to people mm-hmm. in need. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also considered nurse midwifery. I thought it would be nice mm-hmm. to be with people at that particular stage of life. Mm-hmm. Um, but just as God would have it, I met a nurse anesthetist in my neighborhood. Wow. Um, at the time, I lived in a neighborhood where there were not many people of color. So when mm-hmm. this other Black woman, I don't know if I mentioned that I'm Black for your mm-hmm. <laughs> you can't see mm-hmm. me, but we, you know, we saw each other from across the room and gravitated towards one another. And she shared with me that she is a nurse anesthetist, and I had never heard of this. Mm-hmm. Um, So she shared with me what she did, and then she did something that's pretty incredible. She said, you know what, why don't you just come spend the summer with me at my job in between your first and second year of nursing school, come spend the summer with me at my job. Wow. Sure. So I got hands-on, upfront, very personalized view of what it is nurse anesthetists do. Mm -hmm. Um, I spent time with her in the operating room. Time with her when she was in the preoperative area doing a head quick, very specific assessment on our on her patients um, in order to just clarify her anesthetic plan, talk to the patient about what their concerns were, educate them. So there's some education involved. There's Mm -hmm. some calming of anxiety involved, Mm -hmm. um, and just all the actions that we get to do both inside the operating room and how our skills are used outside the operating room as well. Mm -hmm. So prior to graduating nursing school, I spent half the summer in the OR working with a CRNA. And the other half of the summer, she had me working one-on-one, shadowing a nurse on the ICU. Because to become a nurse anesthetist, you have to actually have first been a critical care nurse or an ICU Mm -hmm. nurse. So when I graduated, she 
helped me pick out which hospital I should work at, what kind of unit I should work on there to get good experience. (laughs) And once I had that experience, she helped me identify what schools might be good to apply to. Um, So I've had some mentorship all along the way. And then once I got into a program, it was kind of a funny thing. I called her on the phone and I said, is there something you forgot to tell me about this profession? Like, (laughs) we're all the people of color because where she worked, it was CRNAs were all black and brown. And so Mm -hmm. I thought, oh, this is best kept secret. (laughs) This is where I, this is where black nurses go. But no, I went to school and I was the only African-American in my class. And I learned that at the time, there were only maybe a touch over 1% of all nurse anesthetists nationwide were African-American. Wow. Um, and it hasn't, it's gotten somewhat better today, but not hugely so. So now we're getting close to 2%. Of wow. <laughs> Doubling. <laughs> yes. Yes, but yet it's such a small fraction, right, of the bigger picture. Yeah, that you're working, you know, hard to change. Well, and we'll yeah. talk definitely more about that as well. Wow. Well, she she literally took you under her wing, like mm-hmm. from the beginning, and you got that, like you said, kind of bird's eye view or like front row view of what it is to be a, a nurse anesthetist. Yes. Yes. Yeah, so I've had that mentorship and I pass that mentorship along, not just through my academic teaching or even through precepting students in my clinical practice, but I work closely with a program called the Diversity and Nurse Anesthesia Mentorship Program. So I have been matched up with nurses at different stages of the journey of becoming a nurse anesthetist. And I've gotten to see some through. I had one mentee that just graduated nurse anesthesia school, and I've been working with her for probably 10 years. Wow. Um, every step of her journey. And so Incredible. now all she needs to do is pass her board exam, and then I can call her my CRNA <laughs> colleague. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. So the mentorship aspect has, has begun making our profession more well-known. Because Mm -hmm. every nurse anesthetist that I know, if you ask them, how did you know about this field? How did you learn about this field? Most of us were introduced to it by an individual person. I did Mm -hmm. not learn about CRNAs in nursing school. I did not know much, if anything, about what happened in the operating room in nursing school. You know, even until I started anesthesia school, I wasn't even completely aware of what the scope of practice of CRNAs was. So Mm -hmm. I didn't know that things like two thirds of all the anesthesia given in the United States is actually delivered by nurse anesthetists. And in some places, nurse anesthetists are the, just the most numerous, just the predominant provider of anesthesia. So anesthesia, being a CRNA is, is different, I think, than being a nurse practitioner. Right. We don't, we don't do primary care. And our scope of practice is actually the same as our physician counterparts. Mm -hmm. So a physician anesthesiologist and a nurse anesthetist all train to do the same thing when they're in their respective anesthesia programs. And it varies somewhat by state, Mm -hmm. but there are many states where a CRNA does not need to work with a physician anesthesiologist that we are trained to be and practice as independent providers of anesthesia. 
Mm-hmm. That's incredible. And that means, you know, if we get practical for, you know, a, a lay person, if I'm going to have a surgery, you mm-hmm. know, tomorrow and I, you know, I'm, I'm going to go into that operating room, what, what are you going to do for me? Mm-hmm. Tell me yeah. what that is. So first of all, people should know that chances are good. The person actually delivering your, your anesthesia is a nurse anesthetist, even if it's a physician anesthesiologist that comes and introduces themselves to you and does a bit of an assessment asking you about your health history and doing a quick exam and maybe telling you what the plan will be. Oftentimes, that is actually not the person that's going to be with you throughout your surgical, your entire surgery. And a lot of people don't even know that we stay with them during their surgery. I encounter Mm -hmm. people all the time that think I put them to sleep and I Mm -hmm. leave the room. Mm-hmm. And I tell them, you know what? I am the only person that's going to be with you from start to finish. Mm-hmm. And I cannot leave you. If there is anything that happens in that operating room, an earthquake, a fire, anything, it's me and you, you come in with me. Mm-hmm. Everyone else can leave, but I cannot abandon my patient. Mm-hmm. So I'm with you throughout the process. I ask people basic health questions. I ask them, to confirm for me, do you know what you're having done? Can you tell me in your own words? Because you'd be yeah. surprised. Wow. Some people aren't don't really know exactly what they're having What's done. Happening? Yeah. I ask simple questions about, are you allergic to anything? What kinds of medications have you taken today? Did you take any medication today? And the all important, have you had any solid food in the last eight hours? <laughs> <laughs> have you had anything to drink in the past couple of hours? Yeah because there are risks with going under anesthesia and having food in your tummy. So, and I explain the anesthetic plan. So if my patient is a laboring woman who has requested an epidural, then I'm explaining to her what the risks and the benefits are of an epidural, what the process is. So she will know what I'm doing as I'm doing it. And just kind of assessing how much does she want to know about what I'm about to do. Some people don't want to know very much. They just want to know enough to give consent. But some people, it calms them to know everything you're going to be doing for them. Um, I take care of people really uh, completely across the lifespan. So newborn infants, Mm. uh, I've taken care of patients that are 100 years old or more. So we train to take care of people of all ages. So we aren't specialists generally in that way. way, Although you can choose to work in maybe an environment where you only have a specific age. Yeah. 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 So that is so all kinds of people (laughs) having all kinds of surgeries or procedures done. It's been great. Yeah. That's really incredible to think about, you know, the range because, you know, in being in health, you come to understand quickly how different the physiology of a newborn is compared to the geriatric, you know, um, senior who you're going to be taking care of. So that that is a quite uh, a feat to have the understanding, the complex understanding of how those body systems work well enough to adjust kind of the, the sedation level um, yeah. to, to get them through. And I know that maybe most of the time, we're using our skills for people having surgery, giving sedation to people that may be having something as common as a colonoscopy or someone that has claustrophobia and can't get through the MRI without some help. Mm -hmm. Um, But something that became 
much more common than it's been in the past during the pandemic is nurse anesthetists working in the role of like a critical care specialist. Mm. So because we are experts in airway management, management of cardiac issues, I was actually working overnight in the hospital, Mm -hmm. um, placing breathing tubes in people that Mm -hmm. had COVID and getting them set up so that they could be on the ventilator. I was actually helping to cover the entire hospital because we had COVID patients coming in through the emergency room that needed to be intubated. That's what it's called when you place a breathing tube in someone that, so I'm covering wherever in the hospital, patients that were on the regular unit and had been doing well and took a, took a rough turn. I might be in their hospital room doing this. So we have taken our skills all over the place. Yeah. Yeah. Such valuable skills, which is amazing. Yeah. I'd like to to take a kind of a a quick turn and talk, you know, again, really practical as far as, you know, feeding our families. I often, in you know, the first part of the show, we'll, we'll talk about nutrition and eating and you know, helping our children, you know, to, to eat as well as we can. And I'm sure, especially with the pandemic and COVID, you know, that takes on a whole new level of working long hours overnight and then making sure that your kids have, you know, the food that they need on the table to, to grow. So t- tell us a little bit about how you navigate that. Yeah. So I consider myself as far as meal preparation, I'm a total cheater. I totally <laughs> cheat. And so I'm not whatever it takes, right? (laughs) Whatever it takes, no shame in the game. Yeah. So for example, I have not one, but two crock pots. And the reason I have two (laughs) is because I need one for the meat and I need one for the vegetable. (laughs) And I can actually get the crock pot, all the stuff that I need in each one ready the night before and leave it in the fridge and ask my husband or one of our older kids, Hey, put that in the crock pot and get it started for me. It'll be ready in time for dinner when I get home. Yeah, um, yeah. So there's some of that. And I've cheated lately with having um, dinner boxes delivered. So food services like Blue Apron and Dinnerly and these services that send you all the groceries along with a recipe card. So you know mm-hmm. how to make what they've sent you groceries for. I have been kind of cheating and I've been subscribing to those services. So every week we have enough groceries and recipe cards sent to our home to cover six nights of dinners. Yeah. Yeah. And I will say that it's, it's more of a hack than anything else than a cheat, right? Like you have figured out how to not only have the the food delivered to your house, you know, especially in the pandemic when even grocery shopping and getting to the store, it was its own drama, but they, you know, have it all laid out in person. There's, there's less food waste. I had a box delivered yesterday, you know, yep. with the, with dinner, with two dinners for us. So I am all about that hack. <laughs> Good. Yeah, and probably yeah. a lot of moms do this, but if you're going to go through the trouble of cooking one thing, how hard would it be to double it or triple it? So right. I I like casseroles. I did not grow up on casseroles. I was introduced <laughs> to them through some church ladies. That's right. I really like yes, casseroles, yes. all kinds. So when I make a casserole, it's not something I make just one of. I'll make like three or four mm-hmm. and I will freeze 
freeze one of them for a time mm-hmm. when we need something to eat and yes. I let it thaw overnight. Right. Um, but I deliver the others to some other moms, mm. some other friends. So, and it's been just a blessing to be able to offer that to somebody that, you know, is just as busy, as tired as trying to get it together for their family as you are. Right. Um, right. That's actually come back to me. There have been friends that have called and said, Hey, I'm going to make your family's dinner tonight. You know, what mm-hmm. time do you want it to be there? Mm-hmm. Or that they've made something that they have extra of and are asking, Hey, I have way more vegetable than I need. Can I send you a side to go with your dinner that we can be present for each other mm-hmm. <clears throat> in those very practical, practical ways. It's just a nice way to love someone, to show them that yeah. you love, that you care for them. So like I said, I don't, I don't parent, you know, in isolation, this is community coming together to be able to help provide for each other's kids and families, something good and healthy. Our family does not eat out very much. We are not eating at drive throughs and things like that very often. Mm-hmm. Not that there haven't been times, periods of time where we were doing yeah. a lot, of that, yeah. but we have really found some things that work for us so Mm -hmm. that we don't have to do that. And we find that we like this way better. Yeah. Yeah. That, I mean, home cooked meal, you know, know, is always going to trump, you know, the the fast food option. Right. And so, and especially if we can get our kids, you know, used to eating home cooked food, right. From the get go, then it, it, it makes it a priority for them as they grow as well. Like their taste buds are just more adapted to that. And the, you know, the other stuff is there for once in a while or, you know, that quick pinch, but it does lay quite a foundation. And I know, you know, my husband and I were raised with home cooked meals, Mm -hmm. you know, our parents or both of our moms are amazing cooks. And so we were blessed to have that, you know, foundation set for us. And so, you know, now that's what we want to provide for our kids as well. Uh, You know, even when they, you know, even when they protest, (laughs) we're we're determined, right, to to lay that foundation. Kids that are probably probably middle school and on up, mm-hmm. um, they can actually read a recipe. That's right. And they can put it together. Yeah. So if you teach your kids basic safety skills in the kitchen, when they're young, you know, maybe the first couple times they're following the directions, they might burn it. Mm-hmm. But our children, our older two kids, prepare half, uh, maybe a little more than half of all those dinner box meals themselves all by themselves Mm -hmm. every Mm -hmm. week. So Mm -hmm. that's become kind of part of their chores, but it's become a joyful thing um, because you've been spending time in the kitchen when we're cutting up carrots and cooking, playing some music, uh, audio books. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Joyful time. Yeah. Yeah. Same here. Yeah. My, you know, 10 year old loves being able to, you know, pull out the bo- box, pull out the bag and the recipe card and she can, you know, like take over. She can be the the main chef and I'm just there as the assistant, right? right. <laughs> you know? Right. And and that role reversal is is really beautiful to see because they have been in the kitchen with us and helping in in ways that, you know, sometimes it it is messier, right? And it does take longer when they're little. But if you take advantage of their want to at that age, that that desire to be with you, that desire, I want to do it, I want to do it, right, that they have when they're younger, then you can kind of nurse that along 
into, mm-hmm. you know, just exactly what you're talking about, having teens who are able to, to take over that, that job from you. They can cross it off the list. <laughs> you're right. You have to start young. I mean, my six-year-old has been the one that's in charge of peeling carrots or right. peeling potatoes. potatoes um, yeah. So there are things that everyone in the household can do to contribute to that. Exactly. Exactly. Great. So then is motherhood what you thought it would be? Absolutely not. (laughs) What I was thinking, Mm -hmm. I think I thought it would look more like what I knew growing up relating Mm -hmm. to my own mom, um, which is far different than circumstances that I'm in now. I grew up with a single mom. So she raised me alone. Uh, My parents married very young, had me very young and divorced at some point when I was an elementary school student. And it really left my mom in a hard place. She did not have education beyond high school. She didn't have a quick opportunity. She'd been a stay-at-home mom when when my dad walked away. Um, And she did not even know how she was going to pay that month's rent. And so it was was a hard time, hard time. And she worked at times, multiple jobs, just trying to keep our telephone on, keep Mm -hmm. the lights on in our apartment, very basic things she was working so hard to do. So at a very young age, I became more independent than probably most kids are. Mm -hmm. And I think to some degree, I kind of do parent like that. Like, Mm -hmm. I don't do any laundry for my kids. Everybody does their own laundry, including the six-year-old. Oh, like, wow. <laughs> yeah. So, because I did it on my, right, I did. It. So, right. my expectations have probably been that my kids are going to be more independent than most kids their own age. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also feel like growing up, that at times when I look back, I can see that my mom was just a young woman, barely out of her teens herself. Mm-hmm. Um, they really, it, I felt like she was my big sister or like we were learning mm-hmm. together right. as opposed to her always being in that mom position. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's actually part of why I chose to go to college 3000 miles away from home <laughs> because I felt like we were too dependent on one another and mm-hmm. she, she needed to stand on her own and I needed to do the same. Sure. Uh, yeah. With my kids, I was not, I didn't have them as young as my mom had me. Mm -hmm. So I was in my thirties. I had my last child at almost 40. Mm -hmm. Um, I was more established professionally. I had an education. I had options. I think that's what it is, is I had options that were not available to my mom. Mm -hmm. I have stressors, but I don't have the same kind of stressors my mom had. Um, And I try to educate my kids about that so that they can just have a better understanding of what I came from, why I do some things the way I do, why I make them do. (laughs) (laughs) But, and just to have a better understanding of where other people are coming from. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So much of how we parent is shaped by how we were parented. And so it's, yeah, it's important to 
acknowledge and be aware of that because then you can, the more aware you are of that, then the more deliberate and intentional you can be, right? You can take the things that that worked well, take the things that helped you and leave the rest of it behind instead of inadvertently, right? Just taking it all on and passing on the the things that, that don't work as well. Yes. And we live in a different time. And so that, you know, brings me to, you know, the other question that I love to ask and that, you know, with all that's gone on in our, in our world, even more so since, you know, last year with the murder of George Floyd, we've had to kind of talk about empathy and culture and race in ways that we were able to just kind of let ride before or just pretend didn't exist before. So tell us about your family's ethnic makeup and how you're talking about race and empathy with your children. Yeah. So I mentioned I'm Black, African-American, mm-hmm. raised in the South, grew up in Georgia. Yes. And I have to say, too, you know, beautiful. And I, I do remember, you know, you were one of the inspirations for me around natural hair because, when, you know, growing up, it was, you know, it was braids or perms or all the different things that we can do to our hair. And I remember distinctly in college how beautifully you rocked your natural hair and how confident you were in that. And, and so that definitely planted a seed. And now, you know, I do my own natural, you know, twists and my, do my own braids and all those different things to, to celebrate the beauty of our natural hair. So I, I wanted to make sure to, to acknowledge that in you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, so my husband that I mentioned I met in the gospel choir, <laughs> he was he was the white guy in the gospel <laughs> choir. <laughs> tall and big too. Like <laughs> tall, tall guy. He he was a head taller than other people in the gospel <laughs> choir. And, and with so, the last name Bastardi Italian. Bastardi, American. Yes. Mm-hmm. So he his family is Italian descent. Mm-hmm. So he and I together have three children and Discussions about race prior to, I would say, Charlottesville. A lot of people, we live in Virginia now. So when we, a big turning point for us in our community was actually having all those kind of alt-right kind of groups (laughs) converging Mm -hmm. in the college town of Charlottesville near Mm -hmm. University of Virginia and with their tiki torches Mm. and protesting these Confederate statues that you know, are so commonly found even in my neighborhood here in Richmond, Virginia, that these statues glorifying people who fought for continued enslavement of people, people that promoted Jim Crow, because a lot of these statues were not created right after the war. They were put in place during the Jim Crow era just Mm. to be intimidating. And Mm. so they remain in, in place. And our kids have noticed lots of the conversation about that. And also just, I have tried not to be over like making the decision for my kids about how they want to identify racially. Mm -hmm. Because they are, they're they're brown, right? A mix of both, you know, you and uh, dad, right? Right, right. And so different hair textures and lengths and all of that. I, you know, yeah. And so I wanted for them to be able to identify in the way of their choosing, but with the understanding that when you leave our home, people recognize you first as being Black or being mixed with something Black. Mm-hmm. And that they know that. And it's been kind of interesting to see over time how my kids choose to self-identify with, with words 
Um, I have one child that does identify just as being a black person. Mm -hmm. Like, yes, they have a white dad, but they Mm -hmm. identify with being black. And I have another child that also identifies as being black, but when they get to know people a little deeper, then they're the way they describe themselves is broader. They Mm -hmm. say, you know, I'm black and white. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then our six-year-old has been just a joy. Mm -hmm. So he looks at me and his dad Mm -hmm. and he says, you're black, but not like the color black. Mm -hmm. You're white, but not like Mm -hmm. the color white. (laughs) And I'm tan. black white just right that's That's right and I used to read to my kids that's awesome Um, yeah so but seeing things like blatant racism that we witnessed in Charlottesville that Mm -hmm. we have seen in our own city um, Mm -hmm. with people that we thought were friendly neighbors who are very adamantly against things like the black lives matters just as a general movement, right. um, not the organization specifically, but as a movement, and they're very caught up in blue lives matter and all lives matter. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like they completely intentionally misunderstand that a statement like Black Lives Matter really says Black Lives Matter also. <laughs> yeah. lives matter yeah. we know all lives matter we know yeah. white lives matter but yeah. do we know that these lives also matter that's really what that means mm-hmm. um so we've had hard conversations with our kids about they go to public school so just who and what they will encounter and we've rehearsed things mm-hmm. to say we practice mm-hmm. what to say yeah, yeah. so you know, role playing that that's a great, you know, tip as far as how to prepare your children, you know, as you're talking with them. It, like you said, it, it sometimes it helps build confidence mm-hmm. to know I know what I can say if, you know, somebody, you know, uses a, a slur against me, or I know what I can say if I witness or encounter bullying of somebody mm-hmm. else because of, you know, anything, but including race. So I, I, that's an important, I think, point to highlight is that we can kind of talk with our kids and give them some words to say or help them pull out and, and decide on the words they would want to say, you know, mm-hmm. that makes sense for them and have meaning for them. Yes. And I think yeah. also just to kind of prepare them for what they will encounter, unfortunately. Yeah. So our kids, our older children told me after this vacation, we had a family vacation with my husband's family Mm -hmm. and extended family on that side. And so we're all in this big beach house in a beach community that is all white. And I know how I felt there, Mm -hmm. but I try to keep it in here inside. Mm -hmm. But my kids after that vacation shared some things with me that they felt like, you know what? people were staring at us as I walked onto the beach and it felt like they thought I don't belong there. Mm. Um, they also noticed how often me, how I as a, is a dark skinned black woman am treated differently than maybe their aunts when we're all going out to dinner together, their mm. aunts who are white mm-hmm. um, and how they might be treated a little differently than their white cousins when we're out together together. Right. Uh, Well, my daughter has said it really bothers her when we're out as a family and the server or the person seating us, the host thinks I'm not part of the family initially (laughs) or offer service to my white family members 
before they get around to me, even if I'm positioned at kind of the front of the line. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. People frequently in the circles that some of my husband's family live in, they live in really kind of rich circumstances, really. And Mm -hmm. for me to be in those spaces, I'm frequently thought of to be the staff. Mm-hmm. And so people will ask me to seat them <laughs> mm-hmm. at the country club, like I work mm-hmm. there. And people definitely treat me a little differently. My kids notice, they see yeah. it. And yeah. They see it more keenly now with so much conversation about race right. than they ever did in the past. And with them getting older. Yeah. 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 So develop- that. yeah. Yeah. You know, and we, because they do, children are so aware and they are so in tune, you know, with it, we do have some opportunities, right, with it. And I'm, and it sounds like you're creating a family space where it's okay for them to share those things because I think that's been a, a hard thing to, to do in the past, just even talking about these things. And so I think, number one, we have to make it okay to talk about who we are what we're feeling, how we're treated, because if we don't, again, become more self-aware and more kind of conscious about it, then we just continue to perpetuate what has always been, which we we, we don't want anymore, you know? And so I, I really commend you for, you know, creating a family space, right, for your children that's safe enough, you know, to talk about, you know, race and how we're all treated and how really we're all beautifully diverse and how we all belong. And because they are talking about it, then they can choose to act differently, right? They can choose to respond better and not kind of just perpetuate what has always been. Mm-hmm. Yes, I completely agree with that. And in addition to being able to talk about it, to also teach your kids ways of expressing their freedom to not talk about it, mm-hmm. that my kids will frequently be asked out in public from perfect strangers that don't need to know the answer to this question, Mm -hmm. but will feel very privileged to ask my kids, well, what are you? Mm -hmm. You know, what are you? As if what, (laughs) not Mm -hmm. who, but what Mm -hmm. are you? Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And to let my kids know, you actually don't have to respond to that. Mm -hmm. Um, That, and we can practice some ways of how you can respond to somebody that you don't know that wants to know what you are. Mm -hmm. Um, And I feel like post George Floyd, That's the first time that so many white people in my sphere, I guess, have come to me wanting to know more about what my daily experience is. They have lots and lots of questions. And yeah, you want to be present and help educate people that are developing a heart Mm -hmm. and whose scales are falling from their eyes about, yes, your experience every day is different than mine. And it's not just different for some superficial reason that, you know, could be changed like Mm -hmm. education level or something like that. No, Mm -hmm. you're treated differently because you are black. And I'm just Mm -hmm. now starting to see that. So I want to encourage that, but it can be exhausting to kind of be treated like you're everybody's black friend and to, and to feel compelled to answer all their questions and share Mm -hmm. and share and share. Mm -hmm. So my kids and I, because they're asked too, as young Um, they're hearing things at being asked from their peers and what's it like being mixed and things mm-hmm. like that. So it's okay when you're tired, you can say, you know what, 
there are a lot of good books right now that have just hit the shelves. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. There are a couple that I think you should take a look at and then maybe mm-hmm. we can have this conversation. Mm-hmm. So putting the responsibility back on these people to educate themselves mm-hmm. before they come to you for a more intimate level of understanding of what is your experience day to day and what can I do to help make sure I'm not complicit in that. Yeah, yeah, that's that's great. Great tip to use for ourselves and to, to you know teach our children that they can they can say, yeah, there's there's a lot of ways to learn about that and grow in that and and here are some specific, you know, book titles that can help you do that. And then, like you said, then we can then have that that deeper level conversation in a more meaningful way because it's not just up to you to tell me and teach me from one perspective when there are so many important perspectives and considerations to have. So love that. Love that. Yeah. Gosh, I feel like there's so much more that we could talk about. And I think we will. I'm going to try to get us to do um, another episode at some point as well so that we can talk more about so many other things that, you know, that we could talk about. But as we're kind of winding down on time for today, renewal has been the the word of the year and, and the season. And I love hearing from my guests, you know, what renewal means for you, you know, especially as we are emerging from a very unique situation with the pandemic last year. Tell us about what renewal, you know, means for you and your family. Yeah, I would say speaking personally for myself, renewal is tied to repentance and forgiveness Mm. um, that so many hard things can be really healed and reconciled and Mm. be renewed (laughs) through repentance, making yourself vulnerable and Mm. admitting exactly where you were, where you wronged someone Mm. um, or where you have been wrong, being vulnerable and saying that out loud. And forgiveness for that. So that's a concept that, you know, from my Christian faith, that is something that we talk about, but to see it really lived out, to see it truly expressed Mm -hmm. um, is renewal to me. So when I had have a neighbor that called me after George Floyd and said, you know, I really need to express that I was so wrong on that occasion because it came back to her memory, you know, mm-hmm. after George mm-hmm. Floyd of this one, inst- you know, situation that kind of made me want to stand back away from her and didn't not feel as close to her. Yeah. He understood what exactly, exactly what the harm was done. Yeah. And he called and was vulnerable and spoke yeah. to that. Right. She really spoke to that. And And it made us closer in the end. Like Mm -hmm. we've had true reconciliation Mm -hmm. and our friendship isn't what it was. It's something new, which is what renewal is, right? So I've been trying to take her example and be willing to be more vulnerable with even my kids and being honest and say, you know what? I am really sorry because I know I should have had my attention on you. And I didn't, mm-hmm. you know, would you forgive me? And my kids and I, you know, can have that renewal too between mm-hmm. us. Yeah. Yeah. That touches me in such a deep way because that, yeah, you know, you're the first to bring up the 
the repentance and healing and relationships based on renewal, you know, and that is such a powerful aspect of all of this. You know, how are we going to heal? How are we going to move forward? How are we going to emerge better? And we have to start from that, that place of, I'm sorry, Mm -hmm. Uh, being willing and able to recognize and acknowledge and say, I am sorry, repenting to one another, repenting to God, repenting, you know, it, it takes on so many different levels, but is so, like you said, powerful. And I'll, you know, from a developmental standpoint too, I'll just make note or say that, you know, children, you know, are watching what we do and are, are learning, you know, and absorbing it constantly. And we are often and quick to, you know, say to our kids, say you're sorry, right? Or tell your brother or sister you're sorry, right? Like we, you know, kind of jump and we, we can often, you know, kind of ask or force you know, them to say it. But, you know, what about us? You know, do we model how to say and when to say, you know what, I messed up. I'm sorry. You know, we're figuring this out together. Will you forgive me? And Mm -hmm. they will remember how that feels being on the receiving side, right, of that apology. And that will, I think, teach them so much more about, you know, doing it, going through that process themselves and coming to that place themselves. So that we won't have to force them or we won't have to, you know, demand it right in the moment. But we can just ask, well, what can we do to make this better? Right. Mm-hmm. What can we do in this situation to, to make it right and have that renewal that's there for us if we are willing to say, I'm sorry. Yes. Yeah. So thank you. Thank you for that. Awesome. So as we're winding down, are there any last things that you wanted to say, you know, to moms who are listening right now before we wrap up on self-care? Yeah, I hope that moms that are listening will have grace for themselves. They probably have so much grace for everyone else, their kids, their spouse, um, other moms that are similarly rushed and trying to make ends meet and all of this. Um, But they just have some grace for themselves and know that it's okay to not be make yourself responsible for keeping everything moving to um, be responsible for so much level of detail that it's okay to have some grace for yourself and know your limits and just ask yourself, is that something that I really need to be doing? Like, I know it's good, but is it for me right now? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. So I hope that moms that are hearing will receive grace. Yeah, we all need that grace. <laughs> we all need it. And we have to extend it to ourselves as much as we're extending it to others. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Great. So then, you know, you opened up talking a little bit about walking and how that's become a really, you know, important part of your self-care. Mm-hmm. Any other final tips about, you know, how to prioritize it and, you know, other things that we can do to, to nurture ourselves so that we have something to pour into our, our families? Yeah. So everything, much of what we do is a choice, right? So if I'm going to go for a walk, I'm choosing that over everything else on my to-do list that I should and could also be doing right then. Mm -hmm. Um, But something that I've come to understand is that a lot of things that we really have difficulty making decisions about, that we invest so much time in making decisions about, even if we make the wrong decision, in most cases, it can be made right, or it mm-hmm. could be um, redeemed, renewed. <laughs> it, it might cost you something, yeah, but it can be redeemed. So after you and I speak, I'm going to get up and go for a walk. 
even though I know I need to be working on my lecture for tomorrow. (laughs) Um, And I might have to tell my students that, you know what, this particular concept, I don't have it all down, guys. I'm going to have to record you a little video about this and mm. you can watch it over the weekend, but here's the rest of your lecture. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> might, you know, that might be what ends up happening, mm-hmm. um, but that's a decision. And I realized that not being perfect, perfect. I'm never perfect. Far yeah. from it. I try. It is perfect. Yeah. yeah. But trying to get it all right in that area, it's, if it's going to cost too much then sometimes it just needs to get done. It doesn't need to be perfect. It just needs to get done. Yeah, yeah. Perfectionism will chase us down and will stand in the way of so much, you know, because then you procrastinate or, and then, you, like you said, it doesn't happen at all or, you know, it's past, you know, way past due. And so just getting started, you know, is often the, the, the biggest piece of it and just doing, you know, getting it started is what will build the momentum to get it done. And there is no perfect. It's just do, just do it well to the best that you can for this time. And so thank you for, for that reminder and, and that empowerment to know that we are constantly making decisions. And I think we forget sometimes that, that, that we have the power to make choices uh, and not just kind of be swept up with it, you know, with the phone pulling us and screen time pulling us to do this and our kids and you know their demands pulling on us and work demands. I mean, so many things are pulling on us, but we in the end have to decide, okay, this has to happen first, then second, then third. Mm-hmm. And um, we, we do have the power to control that. Yes. So great. Thank you so much, Lukithia. This has been an incredible time. Is there, if, if there's others, maybe potential, you know, future nurse anesthetists who want to get a hold of you or who want to know more, we'll definitely have, you know, some of the links to the organizations that Lukithia mentioned in our show notes, but how can people get a hold of you? Yeah. So I love receiving emails from people, nurses in particular that are interested in my specialty. So don't hesitate to send me an email. I'll make sure the email address is in my comments. But really, I'm Lukethia at Gmail (laughs) or almost anything. I'm not hard to find. There's no other Lukethia on the internet. And there are only about a dozen African-American faculty (laughs) members in my specialty across the nation. I will not be hard to track to find. That's right. Put her name and nurse anesthetist. And you're probably the one that's going to pop up. (laughs) Awesome. Definitely don't hesitate to reach out to me. Awesome. I'm, I'm sure people will. So thanks again. Yeah, thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to Moms Changing the World with host Akua Walker. The information shared on this show is meant for educational purposes only and not intended as a substitute for medical intervention or professional therapy. All views shared on the show are that of the speakers only and do not represent any institution. To be a part of the community, visit www.momschangingtheworld.org. There you'll find ways to connect with and support the Moms We Interview and find out how to work with Akua as a parenting coach. Join us next time for more encouragement and support to be a mom changing the world, one child at a time, one day at a time. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review.
Thanks for listening.